Hello, this is Mike Fitch from Life Coaching, and welcome back to episode 12 of the ongoing saga that is my podcast. I was uh, lucky enough, I think I mentioned in my last podcast, to go to a conference put on by Serve Idaho as part of my AmeriCorps employment and experience. And at said conference, I was able to set in on a session hosted by three professors from the University of Idaho who were discussing research they were doing on profound experiences. And it really resonated with me. And I was able to listen also to a young lady named Jess Ekstrom, the founder of a company called Headbands of Hope, a company that she actually started in college to provide headbands to children with cancer. For every headband you purchase from her company, she donates one to a hospital for child cancer victims. She also gave us a copy of her book called Chasing the Bright Side, which I highly recommend. She is also all over social media and is not only mature beyond her years, but ridiculously entertaining. I was I felt extremely lucky to have been in her presence. I'm currently reading the book. It has provided some motivation for this podcast, as did those sessions at the conference. So I must give credit where credit is due. Most of these ideas are not mine. Um, I guess they were facilitated by these individuals at the conference, and I simply ran with them. I would say in general that I struggle with optimism. I don't know that I would ever consider myself to have been an optimistic person. I am a natural pessimist my whole life, although I am working on it. I do admire optimists, and I think the power and energy that comes from their optimism is contagious and leads to much higher levels of enlightenment and success than my pessimism certainly does. Jess Ekstrom says that optimism isn't about being happy all the time or avoiding situations to stay in your happy place, aka playing it safe. It's about being exposed to the bad in order to appreciate the good. Otherwise, if we live some kind of blessed life based on a self-imposed isolation, we will never realize how we can be of service to others. Meaning that sticking your head in the sand and saying that your life is great and you are happy is not really optimism. What experiences are you having? What profound experiences are you having by isolating yourself from things that could potentially cause harm or disappointment or disillusionment or sadness? Optimism, in my mind, is in spite of experiencing the platter of shit that life can sometimes hand out, you still manage to figure out how that occurrence or situation or circumstance can be beneficial. How you can learn from it. How it can be used to your and others' benefit. Optimism is being stronger than the adversity. You don't have to run around like Pollyanna thinking that everything is great because things are not always great. Sometimes things suck. 
And it's okay to feel that way. It is okay to acknowledge that they suck. As long as you are able to maintain perspective and step back from the suck and realize that if some purpose is made of this event, then the value of it has not been lost. People speak all the time of things happening for a reason. And although my stance on this has wavered slightly recently, I still feel like things happen and then we either choose to give them purpose or not. And if we choose to stick our head in the sand and not give it purpose, then I don't know that it happened for a reason because we ignored it. I will, however, say that if you continue to ignore it, life will continue to provide you opportunities to be aware of it until you finally acknowledge its existence. Life is really good about making you miserable until you come to the realization that there is something you need to deal with. Adversity that is ignored is the adversity that can cause the most damage because nothing was learned, nothing was gained, and most likely nothing changed. You have to say, yep, this sucks. Now what? How do I use this? How do I make this adversity work for me? Even now, how do we make this adversity work for us? How often in the world have we faced a pandemic? Now understand that question is rhetorical because I'm sure there are some of you that are sitting out there saying, well, let me tell you about, no, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't, I'm not looking for an answer to that question. But how often have we faced something where the entire world was facing the exact same adversity worldwide? It will be interesting to see what role the United States plays in this. Will we lead or will we stick our heads in the proverbial sand and just take care of us? In talking to a friend in Europe, they said that the government has come out and publicly said that the elderly and the most at risk will be prioritized in dealing with this pandemic. I was struck by that, as I am pretty sure the people in the United States that will be prioritized will be the ones with money. Capitalism at its finest. The state of Idaho was reportedly the, only, the, the final state without a confirmed case of the coronavirus. How many of you really believe this? Or is it like most things in this state that we simply had not tested enough people or did not have the kits to test enough people to realize that we did have cases of the coronavirus? If it is like everything else in this state, I'm guessing we have and have had cases that we just simply don't know about. We don't invest in people in this state. We don't invest in public education. We don't invest in mental health. We don't invest in our public safety. So don't run around acting like people in this state are more healthier. We are somehow unique or immune. Just picture Idaho as the state equivalent of an ostrich with their head in the sand. But I digress. I have to speak to the power of profound experiences. The discussion on this was enlightening to say the least. One of the items that I garnered from it was that something that is yours forever is never precious. Meaning that our mortality, the temporary nature of our existence, should intensify all of our experiences. But instead, I think the temporary nature can cause us to react in fear and hold on to things with a death grip instead of simply, simply allowing 
the short-lived duration of most things to intensify our experiences and our emotions that we have towards them and for them. Things having an expiration date should make us revel in their existence and glorify in the time that we have. But instead, it's like we really, really, really like milk. So we keep it in the fridge, but we don't drink it because we don't want to waste it. And eventually, what happens? The milk goes bad, and we were never able to experience it to its fullest extent out of fear. We never got to experience it at all out of fear. Seems ironic, but I think there's some validity there. Today, we have DoorDash, Grubhub, grocery delivery, the ability to work remotely from our homes, the internet and Amazon, which allows us to have the majority of our basic needs delivered to our home, except toilet paper, which there seems to be a shortage of right now. We are headed to not having to leave our homes at all. What kind of experiences will that lead to? The internet has had such a profound shallowing effect on our lives. We can sit back and watch Netflix and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and think we are experiencing so much, yet in fact we are experiencing nothing at all. We're not even living. But it is safe. It is very safe. There's no fear. There's no risk. There's no vulnerability. You can create an image of yourself. You can be whoever you want. Yet, we're avoiding one major thing. And what we have to realize is that vulnerability opens doors for us. It is necessary. Yet so terrifying, so intimidating, that people will avoid being vulnerable their entire lives. I found that in teaching, when I made myself the most vulnerable, I was the most impactful in the classroom. Same with coaching. At least it felt that way to me as the teacher. I felt like my most impactful messages, my most impactful lessons, my most impactful experiences as both a teacher and a coach were when I was the most laid bare, the most vulnerable. Yet from class to class, from week to week, from year to year, it was hard to open myself up like that again, even though it had created such a profound experience, such a powerful moment in time. I would hesitate the next time the opportunity came up to try and replicate that vulnerability. Sometimes the fear would win. Sometimes I would win. I was listening to a podcast recently, and in it, the man was discussing playing a video game with his son. Now, understand that there was a major mental obstacle that I had to overcome for me at the outset of hearing this story because I hate video games. But they were playing Halo together, and the dad said his objective was to take as few risks as possible, to skirt the edges of danger, to try and preserve his life and ammunition. He was simply trying to beat the level with the least risk as possible. And his son, who was a world-class gamer, was like, why? That's not fun. We have to go over here. This is where the danger is. This is where the fun is. This is where the excitement is. If I go here and face these obstacles within the level and overcome them, then I have become a better player. And if I don't, then I do it again until I figure it out. I enjoy the process more this way. I gain more from it. 
He was making himself vulnerable, throwing himself out there, not worrying about the end goal. He was mastering the process in a damn the torpedoes type of way. And yet the adult in the situation, seemingly the person with more experience and more perspective, was playing it safe in a game, knowing full well that if he died, he would get to try the level all over again. It was a game. And yet even the fear of failure and vulnerability caused even the most intelligent and enlightened of all of us to hold back. So very interesting. This gentleman also was beyond wealthy, ridiculously wealthy, had 16 cars, multiple houses, an amazing wife, two kids, and was clinically depressed because none of that made him happy. Because he lived life in fear, even though he had accomplished all of these things and he had all this success and all this wealth. He was afraid of losing it. He was afraid of being vulnerable. The fear kept him completely unhappy and he was clinically depressed. And it was not until his son died during a routine surgery that he changed everything about his existence. I've never seen anything but positives come out of being humbled. The most impressive people I have ever met are typically the most humble. Humility is powerful. It grounds us, yet we will avoid humility at all costs because it means we are opening ourselves up, making ourselves vulnerable to the possibility that we are not right. Or maybe we are not enough which can impact our self-esteem, our self-concept, and our ego. And anytime our ego gets in the way, we have trouble. We have to be strong enough and self-aware enough to not let the fear of the unknown become bigger than the excitement and potential of the possibility. For every fear and worry we have about what might happen, we can counter with the possibility of what might be. I used to do this all the time as a coach. Ooh, what if we lose? What if we lose? What if we lose? And then I would think of Troy O'Dell. I would say, ah, hmm, hmm. well, what if we win? What if we win? We have to tell ourselves to pledge to be more excited about the potential than the fear of the unknown. In that process, we create profound experiences. When I was 23 years old, I was faced with a profound experience. I got into teaching and coaching because I wanted to make a difference. I did not, however, want to be a head coach. I had absolutely no desire to be in charge. I wanted to be on the periphery. I wanted to be with the kids. I wanted to help, but I did not want to be in charge. I wanted to teach. And I wanted to be an assistant football coach and just enjoy the process. Well, at 23, I was faced with the proposition of being the head basketball coach. There was no teaching job associated with the coaching job. We were the smallest 3A school in the state. We had just come off a 4-18 and season that saw us finish last in a league that was loaded with very good, very big schools, including the defending state champion, CUNA Caveman. There was not a long list of people scrambling for this job. If I wanted it, it was basically mine. I warred over the decision. Thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. Came up with a million reasons not to do it. 
and against what I thought was my better judgment at the time, I agreed to apply for the job. Being the only person that applied for the job, I got it. I was terrified. I had never played organized basketball. I had been cut every year I tried out, which was several. I had spent two years as a varsity assistant under two different coaches at two different schools. And that was the extent of my preparation for such a job. And although the Fruitland program had come into rough times in recent years, it was one of the premier 3A basketball programs in the state. I was terrified by the notion of trying to take on such a monumental task. I felt very, very vulnerable, and this was not normal for me. I always played it safe, didn't take chances, didn't take risks. I don't like to fail. In fact, I don't like to do things that I'm not good at. And yet here I was about to throw myself into what amounts to a very high profile job in a small town. I will admit ego played a role in my taking the job to be a head coach, to have that status, especially at my young age. I'm not going to lie. It impacted my decision. But in typical fashion, that ended up working against me. In the years when my ego was in charge, we struggled as a program. I was concerned about perception. I was concerned about getting fired. I was concerned about what people thought, how those losses in our record reflected on me as a person. We struggled for the first three to four years in the program. It took us a while to get our legs underneath us. I say we because Troy O'Dell had joined the journey with me from day one as my varsity assistant, and we were inseparable as coaches and ridiculously good balances for each other. I would not and could not have done the job without him. It was not until the 2003 season that Troy stepped back from the process, as he was known to do in all of his infinite wisdom, and articulated in his own way that it was not about us. It was not about perception and that all we could do is all we could do and to hell with everything else. We had to just do our best and live with it. We had to quit letting ego and fear influence our coaching decisions and processes. For me, success and freedom came when I learned that it was not a direct reflection of me as a person how the team performed. I had to simply trust the process and understand adversity in the process, of which there was a lot, was not to be avoided. Within that adversity was the power for progress, for evolution, for improvement. I gave up trying to control everything and everyone. We just wanted the players to love each other, love the process, play hard, and the outcomes would take care of themselves. There was no pressure, simply opportunity, and we found a ridiculous amount of success after we came to terms with that. Profound experiences abounded after that. The number of profound experiences that came from my 20-plus years of coaching, I cannot put into words. I could talk on here for hours about everything that I've learned and how I've been able to take all of those things that I learned and apply them to my life in successful fashion. And it never would have happened if I had not made myself vulnerable and taken that first step in applying for that job. Something completely out of character. If I had not taken a chance, if I had let the fear keep me from trying, I would never have been able to experience the magical 20-year run we had running that program. 
It makes me think what opportunities my fear has made me miss in my life up to this point. And I am determined to not allow my fear to cause me to miss anything else. Dive in, be vulnerable, try. Jess Ekstrom says that a hard time could be an excuse to do less and retreat. You will do anything and everything to avoid pain and failure. Why would I put myself through that again? This begs the question of fear. Will we live life afraid or will we live life fearlessly? Hard times are either excuses to do less or reasons to do more. But reasons to try to move forward are born out of optimism. So that stubbornness that you are so proud of could actually be conveyed as optimism. A dogged determination to not lose, to not quit. It is no pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna-type optimism. It is I-will-not-allow-this-to-defeat-me type optimism. Excuses are born out of fear. Even though this will be hard, it will be necessary. Which approach will you take? Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all of you. We'll see you next time.